Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Price of Victory, with a message titled, A Willing Gift. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Everyone who has ever been involved in raising money for a project will be able to identify with 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And for those who have never done it and those who are quick to criticize, you know, it might offend you when you read this chapter. It's because I've said when I began the study of chapters 8 and 9, money tends to be a very sensitive matter among so many of us. You know, there's a fine line between urging people to give to a worthwhile cause and becoming too aggressive and maybe even abusing people. For some of us, when we come to 2 Corinthians 9, we might just conclude that the line has been crossed. It's time to tell Paul to butt out. But are we right? Is there room to talk openly about our giving? Should we discuss what our giving tells us about the kind of people we are? Well, Paul thinks so. So let's begin reading our entire passage today. It's 2 Corinthians 9, 1-5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, let's be clear about the overall picture of what's being said here. From the last chapter, chapter 8, we learned that Paul was sending a trio of three men who were going from him to Corinth to collect from the Corinthians an offering to be then taken and dispersed among the poor Christians living in Jerusalem. The three men were Titus, who had served Paul as an envoy to Corinth for some time. The second was an unnamed but famous preacher who had been selected by a group of churches to serve them in this matter. And the third was a man that Paul was training who had been found faithful. But these men were not going to Corinth as fundraisers. Rather, they were going to Corinth to assist the church in fulfilling an earlier promise. And if you want an analogy, imagine the following scenario. Let's say your local church is raising money for a special project. You know, it could be anything from, you know, a building project to a project to raise money for Bibles in some part of the world or for a special project, maybe to build a school or a hospital or a church building in a poor area or to provide agricultural resources. You know, the list is endless. Now, your local church knows that the money that's needed for this project is not readily available. That is, it's going to take some time to raise it. And so they asked the members of the congregation for a pledge. Will you commit over the next year to give to this project? And then the congregation is encouraged to fill out pledge forms. So let's say in the next year, I pledge to give, let's say it's $2,000 to this project. You know, others join with me. All the pledges are counted up and it makes a considerable sum and everyone's overjoyed. It's more than we expected. We make sure that everyone knows the pledge and what this money will provide. We all feel good about our church and what happens when we have godly projects. And then a year goes by and very little money is collected. 
mean, what happened to all those pledges? I mean, if that were to occur, there'd be two ways of dealing with that. I mean, one possible way is simply to say, well, I guess, you know, people just changed their minds and we have to respect what people want. And so I guess things have changed. I mean, that would be one approach. Don't cross that fateful line when it comes to money and make demands. It's just not acceptable. But as we're going to see, that approach leads the local church to have a very bad reputation. We're going to have to talk about that. The other possible approach is to call on people to keep their commitments. In this approach, we would remind them of what gave rise to the project in the first place. And we might even remind those who had made pledges of others who've kept their pledge. We'd call that accountability. To do that takes courage, and it also would create some resistance, I would imagine. And in the first five verses of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is clearly taking this second approach. But before we dive right in and examine this passage, let me suggest there are some very important principles for all of us to learn from this passage. What are we to do with our commitments to give? Is giving a matter between simply ourselves and God alone? That is, should we say, how dare you hold me to account? What shall we do when we've made a previous commitment but that commitment has become inconvenient and hard for whatever the reason might be. Let's put those questions on the back burner, and we're going to return to those later. And so for now, let's begin our study of 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5, and we start with verse 1. Let's read it again. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. And we could translate that passage as saying, it's unnecessary for me to again tell you how important this project is. It would be redundant to explain it all over again. You know, first, the critical need in Jerusalem, and then second, the obligation that all Gentile Christians have toward their Jewish brothers and sisters. I mean, we went over that before. It would be improper after you'd already agreed that this was a critical need that we'd again try to convince you. I mean, that would be insulting, even to call you hypocritical that you change your mind on a whim. In essence, Paul is simply taking for granted that they're already convinced and there's no reason to believe that they're less convinced now. He's already provided them with more information than they needed to hear. And the point here is very important. There is a time for talk. There is a time to be convinced. There's a time to ask hard questions about whether or not a project demands sacrifice. But there's also a time when talk must come to an end. And sometimes this is true for all of us. But sometimes, you know, talk is just a substitute for doing nothing. Time for talk to end. Do we go to war or do we stay home? Do we step up and make the sacrifice? Or are we content if this project comes to nothing? No, there's a time when we must commit. And with that commitment, all talk must come to an end. The only interest we have after that is action. But Paul says, even on that, it's superfluous to write on even that. You agree with me that the time for talk has come to an end. It's not necessary to even write you and encourage you to take action now. We already agreed on that. And with that in mind, we go to verse 2. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia— saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, when Paul mentions Macedonia, he's referring specifically to three churches in northern Greece. Paul says, I've been telling the churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Berea about the dollar amount that you Corinthians had put on your pledge cards for this special project. 
Now, before we say, you know, hey, that, that's a bit manipulative, by letting others know what they had committed, you've now locked us into a box so that we can't even change our minds. We have no way to save face. Well, perhaps. But notice the first part of this verse. Paul says, I know your readiness. You know, the reason Paul had boasted to those three churches about what the Corinthians had pledged, well, it was because the Corinthians had told Paul personally how enthusiastic they were about this. Indeed, the response had been so great and so over the top that Paul was greatly encouraged, and he couldn't get over it. And what he said in Macedonia was simply what the Corinthian Christians had already said to him. You know, the words, I know your readiness, could also be translated as, I know your eagerness. I was there when you showed your passion for this project. It really thrilled me to see how you loved the Jerusalem Christians so that, you know, I thought it was important to let others hear what you said. You became the leader in this project. It's what you wanted. I relished that, and you did too. You know, Paul was a man of both word and deed. He was the kind of man that when you spoke words, those words actually meant something. When you express yourself in the way that you did, I took it for granted that you were telling me the truth and that you're willing to back it up with action regardless of the cost. That's the kind of people I assumed you to be, and that's why I boasted about you to the Macedonian churches. So let's talk about boasting, shall we? I boast about you. Let me give you a little rule of thumb. Boasting about ourselves, I would think that would never be appropriate. I know that in this day in which we live, in order to get elected or re-elected, it's quite common for politicians to draw attention either to what you know, they've already accomplished or what they're capable of accomplishing. I know that's done with such frequency, we hardly even raise an eyebrow anymore when we, when we hear it. And the problem with that is that it often leads to pride and arrogance and, and a lack of humility. All of that's at odds with a life of biblical faithfulness. But boasting about others, well, that's another matter. It tells the other, I've noticed your faithfulness and I'm proud of you. And that, says Paul, is what I did when I talked you up among the Macedonian Christians. One of our listeners wrote, We believe that Back to the Bible Canada is at the beginning of something groundbreaking in Canada. God is and will use you in an amazing way. Well, messages like this are so encouraging and eye-opening. God is at work and the gospel is being heard across this entire country. Back to the Bible Canada programming is broadcast from Vancouver Island to Prince Edward Island on 98 facilities with some 2,652 releases of programming every week. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to promote spiritual growth and lead people into a growing and dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Find out how you can join us in this mission by visiting Back to the Bible Canada or by giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You know, the problem with flattery is that it's always untrue and it's always manipulative. But genuine praise for something that is true, well, that's encouraging and it lifts people up. And so when the Corinthians made the pledge they made, Paul rightly thought that the rest of the churches should hear about it. 
And just like Paul expected, it greatly encouraged the rest of the churches, and it made others say, hey, we want to be as faithful as the Corinthians too. It was a very good thing that Paul did when he boasted about the Corinthian pledge drive. And if you're wondering how many churches were involved in the project to help the poor in Jerusalem, well, it tends to be quite an extensive list. You know, the Corinthian church obviously was on board, and we know from 2 Corinthians that so were the Philippians and the Thessalonians and the Bereans. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, there we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. That's to say, before the Corinthians even got on board, the churches in Galatia had already been on board. And Paul had given them specific instructions as to how to properly collect the funds. So who are the Galatian churches? Well, they would have included, at the very least, the church in Iconium, the church in Lystra, and the church in Derbe. Three churches in all, so if you're keeping score, that makes seven so far. From Acts 20, verse 4, I think it's reasonable also to assume that the church in Ephesus was also on board. And so now that brings our count to eight, and there probably were more. And from that, we learn that this had become a massive Gentile project. And you have to assume that by the time the money reached the the starving and economically needy Christians in Jerusalem, you know, these believers would have been overwhelmed. And this expression of concern and love would surely have, you know, cemented a great unity between all of the churches. And it's another reason that Paul spent so much time telling various churches what the other churches were doing. It allowed churches to hear of the zeal of others that they had for Jewish brothers and sisters and allowed the whole church to experience brotherly love. And I think it's still true today. Whenever churches or individual believers have a commitment to a common cause and a cause that together requires sacrifice, something we're doing in union with each other, well, we soon find friendship and a solidarity that can be achieved through no other means. Joint projects that require equal sacrifice from all builds a sense of camaraderie. It's the same kind that you find among soldiers on the battlefield. Our hearts are melted to each other. Now to verses 3 and 4. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. See, at the outset, we might think that this statement seems to condemn the Corinthian Christians. You know, Paul's been boasting about the Corinthians, but now he seems unsure if whether or not his boasting has been true or not. See, in order to see what gave rise to this statement, we need to go back to the previous chapter, that is chapter 8 and verse 10. There, Paul reminds the church that it was a year ago now that we had started on this project. Does that mean that 12 months have passed between commitment and action? Well, yeah, it seems that's what had happened. Well, let's be fair to the Corinthians. They had a major crisis in their church. The delay in this project was caused by a controversy. The church had been through a major conflict. Eventually, the person who caused the controversy had come to his senses and repented, but the amount of energy that was required had placed Paul's project on the back burner, at least as far as the Corinthians were concerned. But Paul's completely aware of that. There was a legitimate reason why things turned out as they did. Paul is also aware that the Corinthians are falling behind all the other churches, where once they were providing leadership to this project, now they're at the back of the pack. And Paul's not content that that should happen. 
He's been boasting about the Corinthians, and he's concerned that his boasting in his words should not be found empty. You know, the Greek word that Paul uses here is a word that speaks of something that has caused something else to lose its power. That is, in the past, when Paul boasted about the Corinthians, there was indeed much power in his words. But if there was no follow-through, then the power's all gone. All we have to do is think about that in our own terms. Let me give you something I remember as a painful example of just such a phenomenon. I remember a man who had a ministry of speaking of the joy of suffering for Jesus. He had lived in a very restrictive country where Christians were frequently sent to prison for evangelizing children, for instance. And so if you were conducting a Sunday school program, that was seen as attempt to subvert the next generation. It had to be stopped. And as a result, Christians were suffering terribly under these policies. And so this man who had come from this nation would regularly go out and speak to various churches of the glories of being a martyr and of being a Christian who was willing to suffer for Christ. You know, sometime after I had heard him speak, I had the opportunity to visit his home nation. Well, things had changed. The policies of persecution had come to an end and a new era had opened up for the church. God's people were deeply grateful. But I met some people who remembered this brother, that he had left them and gone to Canada. They said, you know, when things got really tough and we needed leaders who would give us courage, that man, when he got his first opportunity to emigrate to another country, he simply took it and ran away. When we needed him the most, he abandoned us for his own advantage. When I got home, I made an appointment to see him. We went out for coffee together. I asked him about those charges that were being made in his home country, and his response was, you know, it was both heart-rendering and it was also emptying of the power of all the words that he had spoken to the churches. You know, I said to him, look, I'm not your judge. I mean, I can't even imagine what I would have done had I been in your place. As you know, I live in a country where those kinds of sacrifices have never been demanded of us yet. And they were demanded of you. I mean, who am I that I should criticize you for your decision to leave when things got tough? However, I said, you have no right to go to any of the churches and speak of the glories of suffering for Christ. See, had you stayed and had you only come to Canada after the persecution had ended, your words would have been filled with power. But now they've been hollowed out. They mean nothing. You need to talk about something else, not this. I I know how painful it was for him to hear it. But it is this, words that prove empty, or words that are empty of their power. You know, that is, words that are spoken, but when you examine the content that gave rise to the words, nothing's found there. And that's what Paul has in mind when he speaks to the Corinthians. You know, there was no doubt about it, every reason in the world for them to be distracted from their earlier promises. But now that time was over, and by now, too much time had passed. See, now was the time to find out if their words were merely hollowed out sounds or words of great power. See, it's that way with all of us who call ourselves believers. You know, if we've ever sung, your loving kindness is better than life. And by that, we've been singing that Jesus is more important than life itself. And then when the offering plate comes by or when it's time to make a financial commitment, we simply stand back and say, you know, well, that hurts too much. Then our words are emptied of power. So says Paul, let's make sure this tragedy of empty words is never said about you. 
I'm sending three brothers to you so that when I boast about a church the way I have about you, my words are not hollowed out. Yeah, I'm concerned that when people hear me boasting about others, they don't say, you know, it doesn't mean much when Paul hands out these meaningless compliments. But, says Paul, it's not just my reputation that at stake. It's yours as well, and that's why I'm sending these brothers. Let's prove to everyone, both you and I, that our words and our pledges and our commitments have power behind them. And with that, Paul assures the believers that he's helping them protect their reputation. Verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. You know, the ESV translation use the word exaction. The word might not be familiar to you. You know, an exaction is a demand. It's a demand that's made for the exactor to obtain something. Normally, it's money that's exacted. It's a demand for payment. Paul said, you have to understand me. I'm not coming to you with legal force to demand payment. Please don't think that's what's happening. Rather, let's go back to what started all of this. No one said you had to give. But when you heard of this project, it's you that stepped forward. So now is the time to prove the power of your words. You know, if there's anything that Christians can learn today from this very frank talk of giving, two things. One, once you make a commitment, keep it. Don't let anything hinder you. The second thing to learn is that, you know, what we do with our money, boy, it has a lot to say about us, don't you think? May God give us words full of power, never words that are emptied of content. Thanks, John. You know, uh, you made me think about giving a pledge. You know, sometimes in the moment uh, we, we give sacrificially or pledge generously, and then we find ourselves in a place where we can't make good. What do we do in that position? Yeah. You know, as I was thinking about that, I, um, I, I, you know, I worked together with a pastor who would always say the type of special giving, he would say, um, you know, if you're sitting with your spouse, both of you write a number on a piece of paper, and then uh, uh, then you compare, and the one who has the higher number, that's the one you pledge. And, and I would borrow on that and say, why don't you just add both of the numbers together? Um, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to uh, think uh, reasonably about this and to recognize when we make a pledge that our word is our bond. And uh, so um, be careful before you make the pledge and then be careful after you make the pledge as well. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada has just released a new book written by Dr. John Newfeld entitled Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, 2 Corinthians 5:17 says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The moment Christ died for our sins, we've been pronounced not guilty in God's law court." When you understand the depth of your salvation and the powerful benefits available to you within it, Not only will you be transformed, but your joy and confidence will be apparent to all. And if we could use anything these days, it's the joy of our salvation. While making the most of your salvation will teach you how to access the blessings that God has already put in place through the glory of your salvation. Order your copy online today as our free gift 
during the month of February. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.